Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have Phil Morowski on the phone to talk about his new book, Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, How Neoliberalism Survives a Financial Meltdown. Phil, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Wonderful. Phil, I know some parts of who you are and your background, but maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, where you've been and, and where you are now. What What is your, your – where are you in the world? <laughs> well, I'm in uh, – South Bend, Indiana. I am Carl Koch Professor of Economics and History and Philosophy of Science at Notre Dame. And by the way, I like to tell people that it's not the same Koch as the famous Koch. Right. That's kind of important, too. Um, and uh, basically, I've been working on uh, the history of economics and, and really the history of science and their interactions for most of my, you know, most of my career. And so uh, that's why I'm in a history and philosophy of science unit as well, because uh, it seems to me the issues that come out of science studies and the history of science are uh, another important way to kind of get a handle on what's happening in economics. Yeah, and there's certainly the political implications of, of what you write about in this book and your, your other writing are, are, are very clear, and, and, and even though um, you know, you're focused very much and, and um, is, is very much on, on the field of economics, on the, on the profession of economics. It relates so strongly to political science and, and what we study in politics that uh, seems to fit so nicely into this podcast. Um, so let's get started uh, talking about this, this book. It's a, it's a um, really interesting book, and, and you have this great image on the book's cover. Um, and I was wondering, as, as I started the book, if this image on the cover, maybe you can describe it, is, is meant to evoke this, this nightmare or the, the horror movie or the hallucination that you describe at the start of the book. Um, uh, maybe you could describe just, just what is on the cover and, and how that relates to uh, possibly how you begin the book. Um, it's interesting you bring that up because it's not the cover that uh, Verso first posed and, and actually advertised. The cover that they started out with was, you know, the faces or, or the heads of Alan Greenspan and Larry Summers, I forget who the third was, maybe Hank Paulson, sort of, you know, hovering over a landscape. And I resisted that quite a bit because uh, there is this tendency to try to tell the story of the crisis as if it were this, you know, sort of uh, of, uh, dramatic personal story uh, between these important figures. And that's not what the book's about at all. What the book is about is to, to talk to people who really want to understand why nothing has changed five years into the crisis, when I think most people felt that the crisis was, at minimum, going to uh, alter the way we thought about how markets work, maybe alter the way we thought about the economics profession, you know, maybe uh, alter our, our understandings of, you know, what is the purpose of the economy, and I would... I argue in the book that none of that happened, and that that's one of the most important things that's happened in my lifetime. <laughs> and so, therefore, 
I really needed to work my way through it and other people. And the, the picture that, in fact, I proposed and they accepted, that's on the cover of the book, is uh, a, a large urban area on the edge of a cliff. And, of course, immediately what that does is that telegraphs the notion that because nothing has changed, uh, the economic system is easily as uh, vulnerable to further collapse uh, as it was in 2007, 2008. And so that's another thing that I want to understand, too, is that, you know, how can that be? How can And why is it that nobody wants to think about that? Everyone wants to believe that, you know, there were these famous people who somehow, uh, you know, maybe fixed part of the problem enough so that uh, the economy is eventually slowly getting better, which I think is an extremely dangerous belief. Yeah, and, you know, I think these, these book covers is something that um, uh, uh, we as academics don't spend enough time on. I think it, it, it really does, it makes a difference, and in, in starting this book, it sends this powerful message. Also, at the start of the book, um, you described that you attended the Institute of New Economic Thinking Conference in April 2011, this is a few years after the 2007 crisis. Right. I wonder if you could briefly describe what typically goes on at those conferences, and then what was so striking about the 2011 conference that you attended? Well, um, I had looked to INAT as one potential, potential source of hope, at least with regard to the economics profession, uh, because it was started uh, largely, I should admit, by George Soros and his associates uh, to react to the fact that uh, existing orthodox economics didn't have much to say about the crisis when it hit. And you see people in finance even understood that, or at least people on the Soros side of things. And uh, so what he did was he actually pumped some money and organization into a group who wanted to talk about that and, you know, try to develop some structures to, to begin to search out a new economics. And I would argue that in the beginning, there actually was some positive side to that. I think the first meeting in Cambridge uh, had some interesting aspects to it and so forth. Uh, but one thing that I had begun to notice was the extent to which, because the people who organized the conferences were so interested in legitimacy, that more and more they would bring on board to these things uh, people who by no stretch of the imagination could be considered to be producers of new economic thinking. And, and by the time uh, we got to the meeting in 2011 in New Hampshire, it, it became painfully obvious, not just to me, but a whole bunch of bloggers who I also quote, and journalists who I quote in the book. And these people included people like Larry Summers and Ken Rogoff and Barry Eichengreen and perhaps other names that so many people uh, that listen to this will know. And the, the atmosphere at the conference was strangely constant denial that anything really had to change in economics. Now, can you think of anything more incongruous than being at a conference about changing economics where all these famous people are standing up and saying, no, no, you know, we've got it under control, you know, there's no big change needed in any intellectual sense. So um, I felt, I began thinking of that uh, experience as a nightmare, that in the same way that in nightmares you know bad things are happening, 
and, you know, somehow you can't wake up. You know, you know that that uh, disaster is looming, and somehow people can't wake up from it. And it wasn't just me. I mean, I felt that there were even some of my friends at the conference were feeling that way as well. So that was my way in to, to begin to talk about this, because I fear that many people in uh, economics, especially younger people, think that there has, you know, that there is hope in certain sorts of uh, institutions like INET for changing economics, and uh, I just don't see it anymore. Now, one of the things that, that was, I think, so helpful about your book um, was was the way in which you, you tried to parse out some of these words and phrases and, and titles that have become so, so imprecise in their usage. And so one of the efforts you, you take is to separate uh, neoliberalism from neoclassical economics and the way in which those two have started to, um, you know, be defined in, in very imprecise way. One of the ways that you do this is you refer, refer throughout the book to the neoliberal thought collective in this Russian nesting doll that it operates within. So I wonder if you could def- define this concept for us, um, who this refers to, and, and what it encompasses. Okay, um, I'll try to make this short because this actually is a very important but complicated part of the book. Um, I have come around to the position, especially uh, given my experience in the history and philosophy of science, that um, there's something wrong with the way we talk about the history of economics. And it tends to be we look for, you know, this or that grand old man. And by the way, Marxists do this too. Um, and so we decide, well, there's a Marxian school or, in, in the case of uh, the neoliberals, there's a Hayekian school. And so we just read the grand old man and we somehow understand what has happened with regard to their thought and so forth. Um, and then on top of that, there's a deep confusion, I think, in existing histories uh, between uh, neoliberal thought and neoclassical economics. They are not the same. And I, I'm thinking of people like David Harvey, for example, who repeatedly, you know, conflates the two and therefore, you know, ha- creates all sorts of problems in understanding what's going on. So anyway, um, so what I am out to do is to first insist that neoclassical economics has a much longer history, which, by the way, you know, I have written a lot on before this book, and that neoclassical economics is not necessarily neoliberal, although it has become more neoliberal over time. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about that for the time being. But I do want to talk about the neoliberals much more. And I use the terminology of a thought collective there. And that comes from uh, some arguments in the philosophy and sociology of science, particularly Ludwig Fleck, who argues that you can't really understand how uh, sort of schools of thought evolve without really treating them as collectives. Uh, And then you have to describe the structures of the collectives and the ways in which they interact with the epistemic beliefs of the collective and then finally the ideas that become associated with the collective. So anyway, if people are interested in that, I mean, they could look look into that more. But I am making the claim that neoliberalism can only be understood by seeing it as the discussions of a collective over time. And it isn't just a vague collective either. I mean, we can really identify who's in and who's out quite easily, uh, largely through the, the, starting in the 1940s, the membership of the Mont Pelerin Society, which was meant to be a discussion 
uh, society to rethink the politics and economics of right-wing thought. Um, and then as we move through time, this thought collective actually grows much larger. By the way, uh, uh, Mont Pelerin is capped in membership at uh, 500, and this is much larger than that. Um, so uh, later on, a big part of the thought collective is uh, think tanks and the, rate, the way in which think tanks are explicitly related to uh, uh, some of the main figures of the, the thought collective. So, for example, let me give you some examples of some obvious think tanks that are part of the neoliberal collective. Um, it would be uh, things like the Institute for Economic Affairs in Britain, American Enterprise Institute, Heritage in Cato in the United States, the Atlas Foundation, which exists to found new neoliberal think tanks in other countries, so we even have a kind of a, a mothership think tank to develop other think tanks and so forth. So we can, we can figure out who is a member and who's in and who's out. Now, the reason that this is important is because a lot of people, are, uh, especially people who work on politics, tend to have this opinion that neoliberalism is a left-wing square word. You know, we just say, oh, that's neoliberal, and that's like saying, oh, I don't like it or something. This is very, once you start defining the thought collective and starting to pay attention to the ways in which they interact, um, what happens is that you actually get a very precise or relatively precise notion of what this, this thought collective consists of over time. And that, of course, is the problem with not just reading IAC, uh, that you have to actually follow a lot of these discussions through many figures through time. So one thing you'll notice about the book is that in no sense does it just re re uh, refer to one or two thinkers in order to develop what neoliberalism is. It actually quotes something on the order of, you know, maybe 60 or 70 in, over the book. And so... My argument is that there is a, a kind of a content to neoliberalism, but it can only be developed historically through the interactions of the members of uh, this community. And just so that you have an idea, some of the people that we're talking about, I've already mentioned Hayek, of course, who often gets treated as the, you know, the big poobah of the organization. But in fact, it includes people like Milton Friedman, James Buchanan, Gary Becker, um, there are a large, uh, Douglas North, there are a large number of people, particularly from the economic side that are members of this, but not all from the economic side. There are also a lot of people who are uh, very heavily influenced in uh, the legal side of things, and, and law was an important early discussion. Right. Of so the, the one that most people, the layperson would know, would, would be Milton Friedman. Sure. But but George Stiegler is is much less known. But you make the case that Stiegler is as important, or, or perhaps more important than Friedman um, in certain ways. Yes. So what distinguishes Friedman and Stiegler? How are their objectives and means to meet those objectives different? Okay. Um, okay. How much? I have to do this kind of quickly and sketchily. Um, what is one of the most important doctrines of the neoliberal thought collective is their conception, conception of epistemology and its relationship to the market. And basically their story is, and by, this is shared across many, many members of the collective, is the idea that the market is the greatest information processor known to mankind. 
And in fact, that becomes one of the arguments against socialism, that no human being can anywhere near approach what the market knows, so all attempts at planning are hopeless. That's why you know, socialism can't work and so forth and so on. But what's interesting is that there's a reflexive aspect to this, too. See, because if, if they really do believe in this kind of marketplace of ideas that's stronger than a human being, what are they doing trying to organize a, a, a whole or a, a set of uh, structures in order to change thought and then to make political change? See, because one, you could think of the marketplace of ideas as being so effective that everyone just has to sit back, <laughs> be passive, and let it, you know, choose. And they actually don't believe that. See, they're very constructivist at the same time. They feel that, that you actually have to take power, develop a strong state, to make the kind of market world that they think is ideal. All right, this gets me back to your question. Now, different people in the thought collective have different ways of coming to terms with that. Milton Friedman is interesting because he really uh, believes that the um, this intervention that the Montpelerin neoliberals were making were okay insofar as they were just existed to kind of offset the lack of knowledge or the wrong knowledge that was already out there in the in the world. So his whole purpose in life was to sort of convince people that the neoliberal vision of the world was right, and that's how they would ultimately succeed politically. And that's why, and this is why most people have heard of him. You know, he's the one who's out there with the, the you know, that uh, uh, PBS program. He's the one out there with the Newsweek articles, so forth and so on. He's the public face because he believes that version of the marketplace of ideas. George Stigler felt that Milton Friedman actually was being totally inconsistent. That is, why would you have to uh, put all that effort into trying to change people's minds because people are optimally stupid and because of given their own free choice. They either want to know stuff or they don't want to know stuff, and that's just the way it is. Um, you know, so what's interesting is that they, were, they, they actually critiqued each other in terms of, you know, what should the, the neoliberal thought collective be doing. And Stigler's position, I think, is the much more interesting position because it's the position that comes to dominate the neoliberal thought collective, ultimately. Um, and that position is that the public should be optimally stupid, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, in fact, if various people, you know, uh, throw their stand and fog <laughs> into the public, making it harder for them to understand what's going on, that's okay, too. Um, what they should be doing, Mont Pelerin, <laughs> is that they should be developing um, – the kind of ideas that the, the elite will want but don't know they want yet. <laughs> I think this is fascinating. Um, that, uh, basically, their job is to develop this new kind of politics and political economy explicitly for the elite. <laughs> and this makes sense relative to their vision of education, too. And this is one place where uh, Milton Friedman was inconsistent. Um, they, uh, let, let's say the Stiglerites, think that you really, of course, don't want the state funding education. You want education to be totally a market process, everybody buying their own human capital. By the way, that's a Gary Becker story. You see that that's part of the neoliberal uh, story as well. And, you know, most people, quite frankly, are not going to be able to afford it. So the only kind of 
academic work that really makes sense from a neoliberal point of view is to take possession or, you know, occupy a few very rich universities where only rich people or, you know, affluent people can afford to go. And what you're doing is you're developing ideas to change the future of their thought. And you see, I think that's where uh, a lot of neoliberalism has gone, that it doesn't exist anymore to sort of convince people of the truth and, you know, perspicacity of neoliberal thought in general. Basically, um, it's pretty happy to kind of just, uh, you know, tell them anything they want to hear now, that most of neoliberalism is stratified now. There's one version for the masses, and there's another version for the elite. And uh, that's what the rest of the book is about, is how that works out in the crisis. Yeah, and you tell a very um, full and complete story, one that we're not able to get into the full full detail of. But in sort of um, trying to wrap this up a little bit, there's so much more to talk about. Um, But but if we imagine awakening from this nightmare that you described... Um, rather than the world changing, you argue that things essentially remain the same, that this neoliberal thought collective didn't run and hide, uh, nor did they even try to change their argument. Um, they, you know, to use the, the cliche of the day, they, they doubled down on their argument. Um, well, I wonder... Exactly. See, I mean, I'm okay. careful about that. But, yeah. Um, there, that was my sort of first reaction when I started to work on this. But I think... Um, it's really important for people to read through to the last chapter, which is chapter, mm-hmm. which summarizes the extent to which they have honed and changed to a certain extent their responses. And I think that what's happened now is that they have developed, uh, and this is really a political uh, idea, they have developed a full-spectrum response to crises. And uh, in the last chapter, I show that there is a pattern to this response because it's roughly the same response to global warming as it is to the economic crisis that we've just been through. And I'll do this really fast. Uh, You have to uh, summarize that there are different kinds of political responses in the short term, in the middle term, and in the long term. And they don't all emanate from the same place, but they do all emanate from different sectors of the neoliberal thought collective. And uh, roughly... Uh, very roughly and very short, so I know you're limited. Um, they are, the short term is denialism. And notice that's the same as, as global warming denialism. It just says that, wait a minute, everything that you thought, you know, happened that might have been disastrous really wasn't disastrous. You know, it's just all the, the liberal media masking it and blah, 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 blah. So, and a lot of the book is about how the economics profession performs this function of denialism of the crisis, at least initially. The, mid, the medium-term response is market-based mitigation. And the way to say this in a, a phrase is that neoliberals believe that whenever it seems that a market fails, you always try to fix it by adding more new markets. And in the crisis, the way that this happens is that um, much of the so-called uh, uh, rescue of the banking sector is in fact heavily privatized. I don't think people realize the extent to which that's true, that even though it took a strong state to do it, um, many of the attempts to sort of uh, take care of the toxic assets and so forth actually are are placed directly into private hands. And so what this does is this privatizes what you would normally think of 
as a, a, a state rescue, okay? And then there's the long-term response, and the long-term response is, I think, the most fascinating, that the, in the long-term response, what they worry about is they worry that somehow, the mar- because the market's smarter than anyone else, uh, the market has to discover its own transformations of nature and society, which will transcend crisis. And the way this works with global warming is this whole idea of geoengineering, this frightening idea that somehow we don't we don't uh, stop carbon emissions instead, you know, we sort of black out the sun by spewing shit up in the atmosphere. Um, and the way this works in the um, in the economic crisis uh, uh, is the idea that the best way to fix any problems in uh, finance is to allow further financial innovation to somehow work around it. And the main uh, proponent of this is somebody who I think most people don't understand is neoliberal, is Bob Schiller. His recent book, Finance and the Good Society, is exactly captures this notion that somehow entrepreneurs inventing wicked new strangely complicated instruments will somehow extract us from the fact that, you know, our big banks are still ultimately insolvent in some way. See, so, I mean, I think this is fascinating that there is a, uh, there, there is a set of responses which fill up the space of discussion of the crisis and essentially push out any other kind of discussion of how the crisis might be mitigated or fixed. Yeah, yeah. The, the book is just really, really interesting. And yeah, as I mentioned to you earlier, we um, yeah had the chance to talk with Daniel Stedman Jones, who who covers some similar ground in a different way. Um, but I know that that book, and you referenced some parts of it in, in yours. Um, you know, is, is taking these steps to to really um, better understand um, this economic crisis, but also the way in which politics interacts with all of it. Um, we talked a little bit uh, off uh, before about the next project. Uh, do you have any uh, sense of what your next book might be? What what direction uh, we might be looking forward to seeing your next book on? Yeah, uh, I'm at, I'm currently working with a, a team, actually two other people, to possibly do a history of the Nobel Prize in economics. I think most people think that it's a Nobel like the other Nobels, and in fact, it's not. Uh, it's special. It started way late in 1967, and it was largely sort of cobbled together by the Bank of Sweden, which where all the other Nobels clearly uh, come from the bequest of the Nobel family. So there's a you know there's a whole bunch of strange aspects to this development, and and you know one of the reasons I'm interested in it is because it has epistemic consequences too. You know, people defer to Nobel winners, right? But if the Nobel is a strange beast and a little bit odd in the case of economics, well, then people need to rethink, you know, their their uh, uh, their sort of natural homage to uh, Nobel winners. Then, yeah. Well, well, these both sound like that sounds like a very interesting direction. I hope that you come back when when the, that book is is out in the future. Until then, uh, Phil's book, Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, How Neoliberalism Survived the Financial Meltdown, is uh, published recently by Verso Books, available widely. Uh, Phil, I really enjoyed the book, really enjoyed talking. Thank you very much. Thank you.